Hi, I'm Deepak and you're listening to The Meaning Quotient, a place where we celebrate human potential and stories of finding meaning and purpose. This is a story of Diego and his quest to understand mind and reality. Welcome Diego. So you are from Switzerland. So how's it growing up there? Um well you see I had my first 5 years actually in Peru in South America. And so I did not really grow up in Switzerland on my sort of first 5 years. Um and the the one thing that sort of going back to Peru was um I have a few memories that really were very significant and one was that um I had a, a sister that was very sick she was younger to me and uh she was uh having lots of difficulties with her um after birth and so one one uh, day she suddenly died and I was the one that was always crawling into her bed and was is able that's what my to- mother told me later on was able to sort of uh bring peace to her and uh, each time i was sort of seeing her in in pain and difficulties i was the one that was apparently going in there and was able to sort of pacify her and suddenly she was gone and so for me this was a big uh, confusion because i thought i did something wrong i was not able to sort of so I was carrying that unconsciously with me uh, for for f- several years until I realized that this was actually happening and then my parents decided to move from uh South America because one of the reasons why she passed was that she was um medically not sufficiently taken care of and one of the reasons why they decided to move to Switzerland was that my brother was on the way and so uh, they decided to move to Switzerland mm-hmm. so that he had a better uh health system and so that's kind of like my first memories of uh Peru and so I then grew up in Switzerland for my childhood beginning actually at 5 years old in Switzerland so how my... old were you when you were um, giving peace to your sister between be lower lower than 3 uh, she passed when i was 3 and something 3 uh, and a half or something yeah i was able already to crawl in her Uh, caught apparently um, but she was she passed when she was one and a half so that uh, and do you still have memories of that do you remember yourself crawling or you have been told those stories i've been told those stories i don't remember her, that no but i remember the the one of my earliest memories in my sort of subconscious or it's quite conscious was the lack of her certainly being there so the loss uh so i don't I mean I've seen photos uh and so maybe that's related to that but I I certainly the lack of it was was a very strong and it has probably also determined a little bit my way of looking at experience that suddenly something can disappear. Mm. So what what happened like when your sister died how did your parents took it? Uh Of course my mother had a big guilt thing my father was uh, probably I don't you see my my father was not quite clear where his emotions really lay he was already sort of suppressing 
some of that. I'm sure he was also devastated, but his way of coping was, and that's what my mother told me, um, he was sort of blaming her and she felt very blamed at, but on the other side also she was blaming herself, but it was something nobody could really do something about it. Um, and so my parents tried to cope with it the best possible way. And then when my brother was on his way, I think that my mother was, um, to one extent, overprotective and overcompensating with him. Uh, I, it certainly sort of determined some of my outlook, but of course, later on, I was experiencing something else, which certainly determined much more how I became who I am. Uh, and that has to do more with uh, experiencing at home uh, mental pathologies. My father was an addict. And uh, so he being first into alcohol and then into psychopharmaca uh, uh, certainly determined who I became because uh, I realized I did not want to be sick like this because it was very disturbing when he, we never knew in which state he was, how he was coming home, what was his moods and his uh, temper and uh, all these um, insecurities that were connected with that at home brought actually my interest to what is consciousness? What is it? How does it work? How does it function properly? And why is it not properly? And later on, um, my parents then also split because it was unbearable, uh, this uh, pathology that was certainly aggravated by his uh, medical intake. And in the end, it actually also killed him because he, he overdosed. And uh, but that was much later. And does it, does it have to do anything with the addiction of your father? Certainly his addiction was a reason for that was that he was not able to sort of express his emotions and express his uh, thoughts in sufficient safe environments for himself. Hmm. Um, and so the drugs kept it sort of down and he was, I mean, alcohol first is really like, it releases, you know, you have so much tension, it, there, there is an effect on alcohol that you can hmm. let it go. But uh, when it gets mental, the, the, the problem bec uh, becomes bigger. And, so mm. and how is it for you to grow up in a family where your father is an addict? Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it was challenging, of course. And I think that's for everybody that lives in a family context that is uh, unpredictable particularly also induced through uh, drugs in, in many forms. I mean, there are legal drugs, there are illegal drugs. Um, I don't really differentiate on that level. They all have an effect on how you express your emotions, your feelings. And for me, it was clear that I needed to get out as fast as possible. And one way how I could sort of get up out was uh, going into sports and so beginning with 13 uh, was clear for me that I had of course my cohort of like, like, like a, a, a pack of, of kids that we were into sports and so I then 
got more and more and more into sports and, and what, that was the best way for me to get out of home. So yeah. I was basically just going home to recover, eat, be fed, uh, and then and then go sleep. And the next morning I was out at six o'clock uh, doing my, my training and I was in the Swiss national team uh, for rowing. Uh, and for me, that was also quite interesting because it turns out we were all pretty much similarly trained. But where we were really different was the fact that we were mentally different. We were mentally so cohesive and so uh, eager to be good at that. And uh, we were very good, I have to say. I mean, I was several times Swiss champion. I even uh, was mm. at the championships wow. um, for, for rowing. <clears throat> For me, it was clear that I wanted to um, explore sort of what really was at the forefront uh, of my quest, which was what is the mind and what is a healthy mind mm. and uh, what is reality and what is uh, contributed to reality from the mind side. And how old were you when you started having these type of... I was 12 because when I was 13, we moved uh, to another location, another house. And I remember clearly when that sort of... I was in my hobby room. I was kind of like an introverted kid. And also one way how I coped with my home situation was by not speaking at home. And so I was kind of playing a lot in my hobby room. I had a little room and a table. And on that, I was sort of creating uh, things. Yeah, basically uh, yeah, putting things in new ways together. Mm. And that suddenly stroke, struck me at that time that I was sitting here and I was actually creating something out here, which is dependent on my mind. And that reality that is there, what is it then? And what is the mind? And why this relationship? It's actually, as of age, I think you might be aware that not many people think like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering where that came from. <laughs> now I can ask this question. <laughs> no, but it's, it's beautiful. It's like... Uh, it could have gone either way. It could have gone, uh, you know, looking into the situations of facing the death of your sister, at least subconsciously being aware of it. Mm. And then in a family with uh, addiction is an issue and there's a suppression of emotions going on. You decided to take a path of helping yourself at a very young age by putting yourself in uh, sports and trying to question what's really happening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, I, I always had an inquisitive mind, particularly in view of how to help others, because that I, um, I noticed that this is something which really, I guess, I guess now I can say it fulfills me, that I'm able to really make a difference in the well-being of others and my my first choice when i came to studies was maybe medicine 
But then I realized, no, medicine is not really where I want to be able to help people. But what really struck me in the West is that we have a very particular view of what well-being is. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't really ma- match my understanding of what is possible. And I'll, I'll uh, explain that a little bit more. Mm. Um, around the idea that we have a view of material setting is the cause of happiness, of well-being, of flourishing. And the more I start digging into these questions around what, what, what is really well-being? I mean, I was living in an environment in Switzerland. It was safe. It was food was available, drinking we just open up a faucet, we drink water. Mm. But then I was dealing with all these mental pathologies. And um, after my study in psychopharmacology, and then I specialized in psychopharmacology, I was running a pharmacy here in, in Zurich. And it was during the time of the Blutschpitz, which is world famous for being the needle park. It was in the late 80s and early 90s. Zurich was sort of at the hub of heroin. And it was uh, extremely uh, dysfunctional. And so here we are in Switzerland, where actually material setting is extraordinary. But people are actually falling apart mentally. What was happening? I think it was a lot of repression, uh, repression of expressing your emotions, for instance, but also... Um, reality that material um, stability is not the fundamental cause for well-being mentally. It was kind of like a disjoint. I mean, and it's very interesting also the difference between Reformed and Catholic uh, cantons uh, where they have like releases Mm through certain rituals, through certain uh, traditions like Fasnacht and uh, Carnival, which is a very uh, clear period of basically you can vent. Mm. Uh, but then of the other, on the other side, the reform do not have it that much, traditionally speaking. Nowadays, it's kind of like more mixed. And Switzerland was very uh, controlled, was very restricted. Um, and I was suffering a lot uh, with racism because my name is Diego, and Diego is clearly an indicator you're not a Swiss. And why your name is uh, Diego Hangartner? Which Hangartner is very Swiss. That's very Swiss. Yeah, that's my father's side, and my mother's side is the Spanish side. Hmm. So uh, they decided to give me the name Diego. Uh, and so for me, it was very clear that here we are having a, a, an epidemic. And we're not able to sort of address what is really at the core of it. And like coming back, it's like we were talking about the epidemic, which was there. Mm -hmm. You think this, the prevalence of racism was also one of the reasons of people are not collaborating enough. And no, I think that the, uh, the deeper issues around the epidemic of heroin 
uh, I don't see in the racism. I, I more see it in the incapability to express your emotions. Because all these drugs, what they do, they basically give you a sort of an experience that is a little bit outside, sometimes a little bit more, but outside of your normal framework of experience. And this is why I do not consider these drugs, even LSD or psilocybin or um, heroin and all the psychopharmaca, as mind-altering substances because they do not change the fundamental quality of the mind. What they do change, however, is perception. Mm. And so they're actually perception-altering substances, and this is why they are so um, liked. They do perceive a situation that is really repressed or a situation that is difficult a little bit in a different way. Unfortunately, it's so attractive that people start reusing them and more and more creating those pathologies. But there are some substances which are chemically, uh, you know, addictive, and there's some substances which are addictive based on experiences. Exactly. That's clear. That's clear. I mean, heroin is certainly uh, physiologically super addictive uh, or crack or what, what, whatever you want to sort of put in that category. Yes, this is physiologically. With that, it's like a, let's say a psychological uh, effect. But many others are not physiologically addictive, but psychologically. So there we, we exactly speak about this quality of the mind that gets used or even addicted. Mm. And so when we talk about what, let's say what I just mentioned before, deep transformations of the mind, um, the fundamental quality of the mind does not get changed with these drugs because what do people really want? They want to be happy. They want to be well. They want to be safe. And they want to be uh, maybe at ease. So these are what really is fundamentally present with everybody. And it doesn't matter if you talk to an Asian person, a South uh, American or an African person, or even a European, we all basically are living to experience that. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I want to really experience a shitty, fucked up day. We don't do that. Why? Because fundamentally our mind is sort of driving us to that. The fact is that we do experience moments that are not so happy, not so well, not so safe, not so uh, joyful. And so uh, I really, that was for me that one of the big insights when I sort of was working with my people here, we have a really messed up language that we don't even know what is a positive quality of the mind. And at least at that time. And so uh, I decided, okay, this is it. Uh, here in the Western, I don't seem to be able to find an answer at that time. We're talking late 80s. Um, that can really explain scientifically enough, logically enough, coherently enough, what um, these positive qualities of the mind are and how to develop them. You know, at 
uh, you mentioned the the platz in in Switzerland, which was very yeah, famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Niederplatz. The Niederplatz. Can you tell me what was happening when you were walking in that Niederplatz? Young people not only uh, shooting up in the arms, but also into the neck because they had no knee, uh, space left, or into the under the tongue. Uh, of course, the legs and the arms were completely ruined. They were, um, yeah, literally, they were dying, uh, and so uh, it was. It was pretty rough, and uh, what also was happening is that many people were actually being attacked with bloody syringes, and they were basically just saying, "Look, I have AIDS. Give me your money." So old people were really threatened by that, and. Uh, also young people, I mean, I, I never personally experienced it to me because I'm rather tall. And, um, but in the pharmacy, they were coming in and out, of course, asking for syringes. And, um, and I also had a methadone program in my pharmacy. So we were uh, providing them with methadone, the ones who sort of signed up for a program. Uh, but the problem was with methadone, they started then shooting cocaine because they were lacking the buzz. And so uh, that became really dangerous because on the cocaine, these people were super aggressive and they really had sort of like lost complete relationship with other people. Um, and which type of people were they? Were they people from a particular social class or all through it was from rich to social strata and i knew because actually their parents were coming to me to the pharmacy asking me if i had seen their children if i had seen because they they knew that they were coming into this pharmacy or they were showing pictures of before and after um, and so i i was basically also playing a, a place where the parents were coming. And that was, for me, really surprising to see high-level lawyers uh, and uh, mothers of, for, of, of, let's say, that were looking for their children or were so desperate that they didn't know, give up on the kids. And so, yeah. And, and and sort of after three years of this, I decided I think I cannot really make a difference here. Yeah. And <laughs> when you were there in that pharmacy, and you have these, you were viewing these drug addicts mm. in and out, and you grew up in a family where you have seen addiction firsthand mm -hmm. with your father, and maybe one of the reasons you become a pharmacologist was linked to that certainly mm. yeah how are you feeling at that moment well for me it was clear that this is this is why i'm doing what i'm doing which is i don't want anybody be in there and then of course uh seeing them in those quantities it was clear that something needs to change you know and this is, has to do mostly with our understanding of how the mind actually works. And so for me, the, the main thrust has always been to understand what is a healthy mind and how to cultivate these qualities. But I couldn't find a sufficient 
coherent system in the West at that time uh, that was able to, to give me those answers. And it's only when I ended up in Asia mm. uh, that I discovered that there is something that helps or could help in that domain. And with that, you started questioning why this is happening. What's the role of a mind in, in, in that place? Something which you questioned even as a 12-year-old. And then you went to Asia looking for those answers or no, it just no. happened? Well, I started sort of dabbling a little bit into shamanism before that because shamanism is somewhat, um, they work with these substances that have a perception altering effect mind altering if you want to say but that as i said they don't really change mind in its fundamental quality and you're talking and, about like ayahuasca's and or the shaman ceremonies yeah peyote i'm mm. talking about peyote. ayahuasca is something more on the um amazon side of uh, south america but i'm, I'm talking more about uh, peyote, the uh, psilocybin, mushrooms, and then uh, this was more in Mexico, and then South in America was uh, San Pedro. Hmm. Uh, and I went there on my own uh, in the middle of my studies. I actually decided one year to take a break and go and uh, not do anything of that, but just follow my um, interests, which was to find out, well, what, what are they saying? And this is when I was peddling in, uh, in the shamanism. And for me, it was really stunning to see that what we were called uh, a psychosis, a state where people are basically completely incapacitated, are not able to sort of do anything, these shamans were actually inducing a psychosis in order to help others and were able to help others. So the whole concept of psychosis got really basically chucked out um, because they were able to help. They were quite lucid because it was embedded in a ritual. And the ritual was to help these people, not just to get stoned, but really um, inducing a state which is altered if you may say and are able to sort of start communicating with ancestors or with other energies or other uh, powers whatever the framework is uh, and they were able to sort of help so suddenly i was here with my concept of what a psychosis is and these people were basically inducing a psychosis but were not psychotic what my druggies in Switzerland were experiencing was decontextualized psychosis. Whereas if you have it in a uh, state where the ritual is there, maybe you don't even need the substance, but the ritual might be even enough. So because some of those uh, shamans, they were actually getting into those states of trance without the substance. Hmm. So it was just a stepping stone. And it was not pathological because that's just what we do. You know, mm. we go into the state and come back and go in again and come back again with or without the substance. So that was fascinating to me. It still didn't answer what's the question mind. that was driving me. What's the mind? 
but there was something that was quite opening up a new perspective. And of course, I, being from Switzerland, I was very much interested in Hoffman's uh, life story and, and the insights he had. I read, read all the Aldous Huxley stuff. And, um, and I'm actually living in the town where Jung was practicing. Kusnacht. Kusnacht, correct. And so uh, that was clear. Okay. There is something else happening. You know? mm. and, but it was still all sort of not quite clear enough to me because of the language and also because some of the concepts were, was not something that I was really sharing because they were too either theoretical. Particularly what I found frustrating is they're not practical <laughs> enough. And so um, to come back to my pharmacy time, I was, uh, then suddenly I realized, I think I need to, to do something else. I need to actually bring my skills to a group of people where I can really make a difference for them to become better, to be more happy. That was my thinking. So, And pharmacology is not answering that question because it was no. treating the symptoms but not the root cause? Correct, correct. And the root cause was? Minds that are not operating or functioning well or have a wrong even intention or they don't know really where to look. And so I signed up um, with an organization that is like Doctors Without Borders. There's Pharmacists Without Borders. And I had a choice. The choice was either go to Mosul in uh, Iraq where the Saddam Hussein just had in the during the war uh, with Kuwait in 1990, uh, he wiped out 25,000 Kurds in the north with nerve gas and built up an infrastructure there for them. Or go to Nepal and work with uh, beggars, people who are um, suffering from lepra, tuberculosis, and parasites. Mm. So I thought, I don't want to get involved in a, a political situation in a war zone i i'm not courageous enough for that and i have seen what systems is very difficult can do but i felt very in, uh, intrigued to go to nepal and help beggars because i thought i can help them really become happier and better that's easy tuberculosis and uh, lepra you give them certain specific antibiotics and um, with uh, parasites, the same thing. You give them certain medication and things will be good and they will be happier. And so I went there in Nepal, Kathmandu, and uh, helped or actually built up a, a clinic for, and I ran, ran it for two years, two winters. Um, and I already had sort of started dabbling a little bit in, of course, yoga was already on the, uh, on the radar. But Buddhism was sort of becoming intriguing. And I didn't know the relationship between Nepal and uh, Buddhism to that extent that I know it now. And so I was in Nepal and I was helping those beggars. And I realized something that really shocked me. They were much happier than we in the West. Even their bodies rotting away. 
I, I don't know if you have seen leprosy, probably you have, but have you smelled leprosy? It's really, it's rotten meat. And, uh, but they were so much more happier and genuinely happier. So what was happening? You know, <laughs> exactly. One, what's one happening? end of the world, we have needle plots in one of the most beautiful locations in the world. Right where materialistically things were taken care of, but people were not happy, suppressing their emotions Mm -hmm. and putting needles in. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, in other part of the world, where materialistically things have not been taken care of, but, and the bodies of the people were decaying, Mm -hmm. but we can see the happiness. Mm -hmm. That was shocking. And, my explanation is that a big part of why they are happy is because they still feel part of a community. And in Switzerland particularly, but also in America, the whole opiate issue that we experience now um, is because people feel isolated and lonely. And it's not being in seclusion where you choose to be alone. But feeling lonely is when you don't have a choice. You feel like you're not connected. You feel you're not uh, part of something bigger. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, was the, the key insight. Because those bangers, what they're doing, they're sharing. And, of course, I knew the, the whole scene because I was working with them. Uh, what they do, they go out. They kind of spread in the morning. They go from one place where they sleep. They go out into the town. Some go here, some go there. They position themselves. And uh, then they work. They have basically a work routine. They beg. And then in the evening, they all come back together where they sleep. And they share. One person has earned more money because he lacks uh, hands. So people feel more uh, moved to... uh, give money to that person where the other person has maybe hands but that person is able to for instance cook so the responsibility for the one is to bring in the money so that the other can go shopping and so they have a real kind of like a community which is exactly what we're experiencing here i mean how many people here are really lonely and they're isolated they're frustrated they're sad they're not connected and they, of course, need to compensate that um, sadness in a way, that lack of connection. And in all the research that I've been now uh, also involved in, that's really bringing me more to the current uh, last 10 years, uh, being withdrawn, being isolated is one of the biggest problems that we're facing. And I'm not saying uh, being alone, but loneliness, that feeling of, I want to be with somebody, I want to be engaged with others, but I don't have that access. I enjoy being alone, but certainly I would probably not enjoy very much being lonely. Mm. And so that's... That's one of the differences that I feel in this country, like you're saying, you know, people are physically rotting away, but they're not mentally rotting away. Their minds were very strong 
Whereas here we have physical well-being, but we're rottening away mentally. Mm. Why? What is the, the source of that? And stress is one of them. Another one is obviously uh, wrong motivations, intentions. Um, so I was there in this context of Nepal and I got to meet some extraordinary people that were just coming into exile. They had fled their country, the Tibetans. And there were these extraordinary masters that were actually teaching how to cultivate positive qualities of the mind. And they were able to provide you the answers. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Especially to your scientific mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then after two years where I meet uh, a few people, and I went to a place called Dharamsala, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas in India. And I got stuck there. Because this is also a place of Dalai Lama. And it was, turns out, that monastery was the Dalai Lama's main oracle, Nichung Monastery, very close, associated with the Dalai Lama, uh, and then uh, some other teachers that are there. And so I then decided, okay, this is, this is really the thing I want to do. And so I studied. First, I needed to learn Tibetan sufficiently to be able to learn and study in Tibetan uh, Buddhist philosophy. And so that's what I did. Wow. And you did it for how many years? 11. Wow. Mm. And did you find the answer? What is mind? What you were seeking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're obviously waiting for me to say what it is. It's, if you can just say something <laughs> about that. You have to experience it. Yeah. Can't, you cannot. It's like, what's the taste of honey if you have never tra tried honey of course you want to know the mind the normal natural dualistic thinking mind wants to have a definition mm. and you can say yes it's a product by the bees that have regurgitated and uh, uh, the sweetness that they have been collecting from the flowers and uh, it has depending on what kind of flowers that it's does that really represent the experience of taking honey? Mm. It doesn't. So you have to taste it. And of course, what we know now uh, about this wave of mindfulness, of course, has been catalyzed by that work. And in 2003, I returned to Switzerland to do actually something else, um, which was basically bring the wisdom of that world that I have discovered and it was really giving me so many answers to the questions that I was facing here. Uh, following that in 2007, I formally joined the uh, Institute as sort of as a chief operating officer. And I led that and I actually moved from Switzerland then to the US yeah. and I spent four and something years in, um, in the US and returned in 2012 to build up what we already had created before, uh, my life in Europe. So there is now also a, a sister here in Europe that runs programs. And the main idea of my life is to build sort of cross-fertilize disciplines 
and help young researchers to develop their interest in contemplative science. Wow. And the contemplative science, you mean by looking into various scientific methods and also looking into the various traditions with correct. contemplative practices. Correct, correct. Because obviously we can, we can understand contemplation as a method to explore the mind, mm-hmm. but you can also create a science around contemplation to look at what, what do people do when they are meditating, when they are doing any type of, for instance, also Tai Chi or, or um, body energy mind work, if you were mm-hmm. to say. And my question is, how did the Switzerland treat it when you come back with all this knowledge? It is something like uh, something they don't understand. And what was the reception? I often say, you know, when I was saying 30 years ago, I'm meditating. People were saying, what did you smoke? And 20 years ago, uh, I was saying it. People were saying, well, I think you have been to India way too long. Hmm. I was like, yeah, yeah. But 10 years ago, it was maybe, oh, yeah, mediation, we have done that too. But now it's sort of I speak about meditation and people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've done it too. And so when I ask a room of, I just happened uh, recently, (laughs) there were 500 people in this room, and I asked who has had already done some meditation. About two-thirds of the room put up their arms. So that has changed. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with the mindfulness phase, I think, which you at some extent and some other people like Jan Karpath and yeah. all people came together and right. made it really a mainstream thing to talk about. Yes, and you're not kind of ostracized anymore. On, on the contrary. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's really that shift that I notice also is probably what's happening in the mental dimension. And I was in that pharmacy, I was very clear that something needs to change. We're not getting at the root cause because we don't lack, we lack articulation. And in the meantime, positive psychology has emerged. Danny's book, Emotional Intelligence, and uh, has, has been a very big impact in the business world. Uh, or in the mental health environment. So things are changing, and I'm I'm very positive that it will become more and more acceptable. You would be having a different life if your father would have known more about these things and not gone to the root of addiction. True. Certainly, yes. Um. But he didn't. He did not have that access. And, and it's still, we are still going to face addiction. But it's, it's quite remarkable to see how, for instance, mindfulness-based interventions are also used in the context of addiction. They obviously do have an impact. But it very much also depends about the person and how this person applies him or herself. Now, I would certainly not have had my clarity had it not been for my father so although it was pathological um, and certainly not fun Mm. uh, with a lot of sadness and uh, yeah 
pain, I would not have had this this clarity of where to go with all that, and uh, the the drive also to to withstand critique, uh, uh, also basically people, yeah, belittling me, uh, my own brother, <laughs> but there were of course others, um, and then sticking to it to that sort of yeah i'm certainly driven but driven towards um flourishing and enabling the flourishing to others so somebody asks me what is your vision i say well i want to enable flourishing hmm. and that's what you're enabling in this world diego flourishing hmm. thank you very much diego it was such a introspective podcast and very inspiring thank you for giving me this opportunity chicky rolling road it is our choice as harry that show who we truly are far more than our abilities coming from a family where addiction was an issue they could choose to find the underlying reasons of addiction the choice which led him to his quest to understand mind and reality tego found new perspective in buddhist philosophical teachings and now combining buddhism with neuroscience he's helping other seekers in their quest this is what i call a flourishing life